0: Welcome to episode nine of the Pitside Experts podcast. I'm joined once again by my two colleagues at varying points of the globe, Fred, Freddie Wilde from the UK and Tom Moody from Western Australia. Freddie, I suppose good afternoon to you. Is it Good afternoon, it is.
1: Yeah, it is afternoon. We had that question, I think, the other day from someone on Twitter. They said, I'm fascinated as to how you guys managed to record the show from three different <laughs> corners of the globe. Um, and yeah, we managed to do it with with lunchtime for me, evening for moods, and breakfast for you, Bish.
0: Breakfast well, is always a good time, I would tell you.
1: Yeah, I was going to say. I, I reckon
2: you've probably got the 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 tough, the tough end of the stick, Bish. That the early morning stint, where evening you've sort of you're unwinding a little bit and you're relaxed. Freddie's in the sort of peak of his powers in the middle of the day, so I <laughs> hope you've had a strong coffee. <laughs>
0: I just finished mine. Anyway, just for the benefit of our listeners, last week we touched on coaching styles and philosophies. Justin Langer was our special guest. This week we're going to talk about all-rounders and all-rounders across the formats. Define that. And Tom, as a World Cup winning uh, player for Australia, will be able to give us more insight. When does he not give us more insight into what we're going to get into? Um, Professor Wilde, Would you be able to start me off with a definition of the all-rounder in international cricket? And we're specifically relating this to batting and bowling.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a difficult one. It's a hard thing to define. But I think, broadly speaking, um, they've got to be able to contribute with bat and ball. um, And that's to different varying degrees. And I think you've got um, your batting all-rounders, who are players who are largely in the side for their batting who then contribute with the ball in a way Uh, you've got bowling all rounders who are largely bowlers and obviously therefore useful with the bat guys who maybe are batting sort of um, seven or eight, as opposed to in the, in the top order. And then the very rare uh, all rounders, the sort of genuine all rounder who could get into the side due to their batting alone or their bowling alone. Um, And they are spectacularly rare, spectacularly rare and, and very, very valuable players for reasons that we'll touch upon Um, in this show. So I think, yeah, broadly speaking, it's that ability to contribute with bat and with ball.
0: Tom, I agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The interesting thing for me about
2: the all-rounder, you take yourself back to junior cricket, and more often than not, every young boy or girl can bat and bowl. And there's so many all-rounders at the junior level. And what is interesting is as they progress through the junior ranks into senior ranks, one of those disciplines tends to fade away in the distance. And I think that highlights how difficult it is to master the skill of being an all-rounder. And uh, the genuine one, and I think you can count the genuine ones on one hand, there'd be no more than five over the history of our game that you could put in to the very, very top bracket that can stand alone in all formats of the game as a batsman and as a or a bowler for that matter, so it is an intriguing discussion because they are so valuable to a team balance, um, particularly um, in in a time where. There is so much discussion around bowling workloads and all those challenges that uh, we have in the game with the, the volume of cricket that's out there. So the all-rounders are like gold dust. And we know Freddie and Bish, when it comes to uh, auctions or drafts in short-form cricket, they go at a very high price.
0: And the rules are very, I suppose nuance when you go from one format to the other so it's difficult to add to to much of what you said there just just on the side I know there'll be some listeners who'll be thinking well there are wicket keepers who can be classified as all rounders because they can impact the balance of your team so we're not discussing that here today uh, if we solidified on that definition Tom you touched on some of the things um that impact the development of all-rounders. And I just want to pick up on what we saw in the Under-19 World Cup uh, earlier this year, where we saw so many young kids, 19-year-olds, you look at New Zealand, they had batting down to 11. You look at the West Indies, for example, who had batting all the way down to 8, 9, 10. The physical demands of carrying that into senior cricket what about the stereotype that coaches sometimes put on players to define whether they are good enough in one special skill? How important is coaching to defining the all-rounder or dissuading the all-rounder?
2: Well, I I would be very reluctant to encourage uh, coaches to persuade uh, an all-rounder to to focus on a particular strength i think if you've got the skill it's more about helping that player balance the demand that's required to to continue to be the all-rounder and that there are there are enormous demands the, the number one demand is the physical demand you know if physically mm. it is very very taxing so there is enormous amount of sacrifice that's required to be, you know, as fit as anyone in that squad uh, because you're carrying the weight of both bat and ball. And then you've got the various skill development demands in two completely uh, different disciplines. So developing your action, developing your outswinger, developing your slower balls, whatever deliveries that you bowl, whether it's spin or pace, and then the focus on your batsmanship, the skills and the craft of batting. And quite often, you know, that that may change. You know, I certainly, just thinking back to my career, I started my first-class career as an opening batsman number three. And I finished the second half of my career in first-class cricket, that is, batting at number five. And purely that was more of a reflection of the demand on my bowling to to the, the position I ended up where I batted because it just gave me a bit more time to get over the, the, the fact that we're in the field for a day and a bit or whatever the case might be. You get a chance to freshen up, both physically freshen up, but mentally, more importantly, freshen up for the, your your second string to your bow. Just,
1: just, just one thought I just want to add to that. I mean, the, it's a really interesting dilemma how exactly a coach encourages a player to develop and it, it, it puts a lot of responsibility on that coach these are often young men at the start of their own careers who are perhaps maybe unaware as to their own potential in their various disciplines and the coach has a lot of responsibility there to sort of um guide the player in the direction that's going to be best for him um you know you just think of someone like steve smith for example when he started his international career um, not only because he was blonde and a leg spinner, but people were sort of talking about him being an heir to warn. Um, he was never obviously quite going to become as great a bowler as warm, but, but it's amazing to think he's obviously now become uh, one of the greatest test batsmen of all time. And you, won- you just wonder how much, you know, at what point maybe a coach might have nudged him in a certain direction and had a coach. Um, you know, really sort of seen something in his leg spin bowling and decided he should really focus on that, how things might have turned out differently. So these players with dual skills, there is a huge responsibility on the coach to um, to get it right in terms of what they encourage that player to do. Uh, and at the same time, you know, there might have been a coach that nudged him in the direction of doing batting and, and or you know, focusing on his batting. And you have, you know, they are massive moments, almost sliding doors moments in a mm. player's career. And, and it's very important that coaches get it right. And I suppose it's right then or important that players surround themselves with the right people at a young age. Uh,
2: and just to add to that, Freddie, the, the most important thing there for the coach is to listen. And, you know, the art of listening is one of the most important arts of coaching. Good coaches, good leaders are good listeners. So you need to understand and listen to your player. Ask the correct questions. Don't tell him. Ask him questions so you can listen to him and you can get a fair understanding of exactly where he's at with regards to, you know, his development as a bowler, as a batsman. You can help, uh, you know, guide him uh, along, uh, along his path according to what he is telling you day in, day out. And the other, the other challenge is quite often careers are uh, redirected because of injury. So you may have an all-rounder coming in at the age of 18, 19, 20, and suddenly he's got stress fractures. So then there's a period of a year, two years, where that 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 bowler is recovering through rehab, and during that period, the batting really flourishes. And he becomes a, a, a more of a dominant batsman, and because of that, they tend to fall out of love a bit with their bowling. And I think that relates to Steve Smith. Steve Smith was always... A very good batsman in junior cricket. Let's get that right. He was he he hasn't suddenly gone from a number eight batsman in junior cricket to you know the game's best batsman today. He he's always been a very good batsman, but he just happened to bowl some very tidy leg spin. And Australia, understandably, was in love with leg spin because we had Shane Warne, uh, you know, grace our fields for so for so so many years so successfully. So I think. The, the 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 chance that Steve Smith had to suddenly shine with a bat was a welcome chance for him because that's what he loves doing. He's a reluctant bowler and I think he's always been a reluctant bowler.
0: Yeah and that's why I tied it in I think it's important to tie that into coaching as well because you look at from a West Indian perspective, a number of guys coming through. We haven't always had brilliant all rounders in the last I would say thirty years or so, but we can go back to Carl Hooper who was primarily a batsman who bowled really good off-spin, and we come straight through to the current West Indies captain, Jason Holder, who is a bowler in the minds of most people who bats. If you ask Jason, he'll probably tell you he's a batsman who bowls. Um, How much opportunity a coach gives someone, let's say, like a, a Carlos Brathwaite who's fallen off the radar, for example. I've always felt at domestic cricket, and I've related that story before, had there been opportunity for someone like Carlos, who I think is a proper batsman, to bat and develop his batting and streamline it a little higher in the order as opposed to being thought of and pigeonholed as a power player down the order. I think there was great potential, and whether there still is, I don't know, for him to, to be a genuine force on both sides of the coin. So that's why I tied that into coaching and the vision of a coach in that respect, um, we're seeing less of those sorts of seam bowling all around us now, are we? Can we say that in international cricket, or or is that a wrong perspective?
2: It's an interesting point you make about Carlos there, uh, Bish. Carlos Brathwaite, I think, has been a, a victim of the evolution of T Twenty cricket, where I agree his development's probably been stunted. Uh, because he's been starved of longer form cricket. I believe the best way to develop your game is through the longer form of the game, through first class cricket. So if Carlos Brathwaite had the last four years with an equal measure of long form cricket to develop his, his batting skills, his technique and not have a pure focus on power because of his role in T20 cricket and 50 over cricket, where he's required as a finisher, I think he would be a better batsman than than what he actually is today. So I, I tend to agree with you. But then we're in that conundrum of, you know, with all the franchise cricket going around and how he has been pigeonholed as a specialist in that area, it's It's probably compromised his ability to play across all formats of the game.
1: there's interesting. There's a couple of um, I suppose modern phenomenons that I think are influencing all rounders and 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 they touch on points that both of you guys just made. This you, you're talking there about the decline of 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 all rounders, maybe or seen bowling all rounders in particular um, in red Bull cricket. and, and one thing I, I do wonder is whether um, you know in recent years we've seen ball dominate bats a lot and the percentage of matches drawn in in tests is is very low matches are finishing quicker so I wonder whether test sides have less need for that fifth bowler to sort of balance to sort of provide rest I suppose for the rest of the attack because quite often now games are finishing in four days innings are not lasting particularly long field you know teams aren't in the field for maybe as long as they were 10 to 15 years ago and at the same time there's, I think, a massive demand, as, as, as you made, there's the point you made there, Moods, about white ball cricket. Um, there's a huge demand for all-rounders in white ball cricket, and that's because the value of um, that fifth bowler and that guy who provides balance is particularly important. And obviously, with the, all the financial incentives that are around in the T20 circuit, I wonder whether guys like Brathwaite, um, are now more likely to go down the T20 route or the white ball route, simply because there's one slightly less need for them in test cricket as, as as scores get lower and as teams are in the field for less time. And then two, they can earn as much money as they can do playing around the world. And someone, for example, like Shane Watson, I wonder if he started his career now, would he have had such a long test career? He's a fantastic all-rounder, um, a really good all-rounder, probably one whose reputation took a bit of a, Well, not hit, but has been viewed differently in recent years because he's done less bowling. But I wonder if he started playing now, whether he would play as much red ball cricket um, as he did do, simply because, you know, the the market for white ball all rounders is, you know, there's huge demand there. um, And he was a perfect player for that role. So I do think there are modern pressures on the role which are changing how these guys um, develop and what formats they prioritise.
0: So, so can we just feed off a of bat and, and ask how Ben Stokes sets the example for that as someone who can bat in your top order and bowl effective seam? And Tom, we were talking prior to this podcast about Mitchell Marsh for Stray and how that impacts uh, or not teams that have been selected.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think Stokes is emerging to be one of those very rare all-rounders that we talked about at the top of the show where I sort of said you can count probably that number of all-rounders on one hand. So I think Stokes is in that category where he could comfortably walk into the England side and be in that top six uh, any day of the week. And also with his bowling, if he was just, just a pure bowler, I think you'd be very comfortable with him being your first change bowler because he's an impact bowler. He makes things happen. He's got what I call a good engine as well. He bowls a lot of, you know tough overs he seems to be able to find another gear when things get tough and you know as a former fast bowler you know to have that spirit and that uh, that drive to be able to do that is incredibly valuable to any team so i think uh, i think stokes is uh, is in pretty rare air in the modern game at the moment
1: I think I definitely agree with you in test cricket. Uh, we don't want to go on to just a specific debate about Stokes here, but I think Stokes' value in test cricket is enormous. I think he's a very good test bowler. I think you're right. You'd be happy with him being your first change bowler. He brings something different with the way he bowls, I think, often. He gets that sort of wide release. He gets quite a lot of swing. He can bowl sort of quite hostile lengths, and he can bowl pretty quick too. Um, so he does bring you something there as a test bowler. I would be a little, I'm a little less sure whether in white ball cricket I'd want to be relying on his overs. Um, But you're right. In in, in the test game, he's definitely one of those, as you said, rare, rare players um, who who offer genuine value with bat and ball. And just one other thought I had around um, actually the value of all-rounders. I talk about how innings are lasting less, you know, over faster now. Maybe there's less need for for all-rounders, therefore, to provide rest for the other bowlers. One thing that they do do um, is while matches might be finishing faster in test cricket, the schedule is also more packed than ever. So, even if, if having, having an all rounder allows a side to perhaps have to rest and rotate their actual bowlers um, less in amongst the series. So, just a really famous example um, is the 2005 Ashes. Flintoff obviously was a, you know, arguably England's best bowler in that series. And so he was so good, in fact, that it meant that England took the same bowling attack in all five test matches. And if Flintoff wasn't there, they wouldn't have been able to do that simply because those guys would have been doing a lot more bowling. So they, 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 they play a very valuable role from a workload perspective, not only in the game, but from match to match to match. And I think it allows you to pick the same quicks uh, across a long period of time. And again, Mitchell Marsh is someone we've spoken about, too. Australia have you know, the, the luxury of some very good bowlers. And when they play Marsh, I think they're probably less inclined to have to chop and change them because Marsh can just allow them to, to take a bit of a break every now and then. So that has huge value, I think.
2: And I suppose the dilemma for Australia has been with Mitchell Marsh is that with the ball or the bat, can he secure a position in the in the team with just one of those disciplines? Not We're not asking for both of them, but that's the dilemma for selectors is to create that scenario you're talking about, Freddie, and and to be able to have uh, that extra bowler to to keep your your best bowlers fresh, do they have to be able to own one of those disciplines and be good enough to be a standalone top six bat or good enough to be one of the four specialist bowlers? That's the dilemma selectors have.
0: I think that's a, a big part of it, to be quite honest with you. Um, I think we, we've gotten into an era where, barring the exception of one or two of those players that we talked about, I think selectors and coaches, are a lot of them are looking for someone to be very, very good. Let's say as a batsman, first, you've got to be able, because we've come to that dynamism of the wicketkeeper, for example, being able to hold his own as a pure batsman in a team. Yeah. So to be able to bat better than the wicketkeeper, to be able to bat better than the number six, you've got to be exceptionally good in that batting skill. Very few guys are inclined that way. Or uh, you can go to Jason Holder way, for example, who I think is a, quite a decent batsman, but he's batting at what, mm. eight for the West Indies. So primarily it's his bowling skill that will get him into any West Indies lineup in test match cricket. So I think for me, that job has become very defined and very specific by the era that we are playing in now and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing I'm not saying either way but it's having certainly having an effect.
1: And also one thing as well I think we've seen is that um, you know the maybe the decline of a not decline is the wrong word but we might be seeing fewer genuine all-rounders firstly because it's a very difficult thing to do but also what we have seen in the last 10 to 15 years in particular, is the improvement of lower order batsmen. So we've got a lot of bowlers who can bat. So, for example, for England at the moment, Chris Wokes and Sam Curran are two that spring to mind, who could probably bat at seven in test cricket. And they often do. I mean, Chris Wokes has got a test century. I wouldn't be surprised if Sam Curran scored one, two across his career. Those guys, if you can bat them at seven or even have them at eight, it means you need... Uh, I suppose you you can uh, compromise a little bit elsewhere in terms of the all rounders that you look for, because you've got guys who down the order can contribute runs. Um, So maybe we're seeing a bit more of a growth of bowlers who can bat, meaning you actually don't need quite so many guys like, uh, you know, not that you'd say no to a Stokes or a Callis, but they become slightly less important because you've got all rounders sort of or, or bowling all rounders through the side.
2: Let me ask you this, Freddie. Um, what would you rather in your test lineup? Would you rather have the best six batsmen that your country can provide,
0: mm.
2: and four of the best bowlers that are suited to the conditions, and so on and so forth, or would you rather compromise that best six batsmen and and have that number six slot as an all-rounder that you know is filling the bits and pieces for you? To support your four specialist bowlers, well, who's going to win you more Test matches?
1: Instinctively, I prefer the specialist option. I prefer yep. the having six good batsmen and four good bowlers. You and you basically essentially say to those two departments, you do your job properly and you do your job, and we'll win matches. Where yep. I think teams compromise is if you're not if you're slightly weaker. So you, your four best bowlers, if they're not they, well. They might be your four best bowlers if they're not that good. You are going to have times when you're going to have you're going to be in the field for a long time so i think and then the importance of having an extra bowling option grows so i think it's partly tied to the strength of your side um and i think you know historically the great west indies side and then the great australian side that followed were generally built around specialists because they were essentially like we can the specialists can do their job from a batting perspective and a bowling perspective and they they were good enough to be able to fulfill that as soon as you, and you know, it's very difficult to have two departments that are so good that you can't compromise in one another. Um, and I think that's why it, when it starts to come in, um, I'm just thinking now, even India, I suppose India benefited a little bit with Jadeja and Ashwin being quite useful batsmen, but Hardik Pandya is an all rounder who India picked uh, a, a quite a bit a couple of years ago, but actually he's partly because of fitness issues, but he has fallen out of favor a little bit in Red Bull and India have gone more down the route of specialists again. And they're, Probably, I mean, Australia are top of the rankings. Um, Australia also rarely go for Mitchell Marsh is, is an occasional selection for them. Both the two best sides in the world at the moment generally seem to go down that specialist route. And I think that's because they can trust the two departments to do their job properly.
0: What would you prefer, Bish? Specialists. Uh, Specialists. Because of the era that I grew up in, uh, we always felt that four quicks At the time, it doesn't have to be four quicks, but four quicks were good enough to get 20 wickets in a test match. Uh, We had Jimmy Adams at times. We had Karl Hooper uh, doing a decent job. And it was more than a holding job. eh? I I look at South Africa and the number of all-rounders they had uh, up to maybe a decade ago. I don't like the term holding job because I think any bowler coming in should provide more than just rest. Or relief, He should also be a wicket-taking option, so it might be semantics. Um, and that goes back to the point where I think teams are thinking now specialists as well. They're thinking your top six, if you have an all-rounder, he has to be a better batsman than whoever the wicket-keeper is at seven or whoever that number six is, unless you're fortunate to have an Andrew Simons or someone like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um does this evolve? How much does this evolve as we go into fifty over and t twenty cricket? Is there a last word on on how we're seeing the orround as opposed to red ball cricket?
2: just just a final point on on the test uh, structure though. Um, the other thing we've got to understand is overrate is nowhere like it used to be, So they're not right. bowling as many overs per hour. So a, day, a day's cricket is not as strenuous. Freddie has already indicated through his analysis that test matches rarely go the full five days. So the, the, the physical demand is not as great. The other thing to appreciate, whether we like it or not, Bish, they're a lot fitter than what you and I were. <laughs> so <laughs> but- the, the modern-day cricketer, they're elite athletes. They are... Exceptionally fit and finely tuned to perform. So that just again, I think backs up the point that both of you guys have made and I agree with is that the specialist is your best balance in test cricket.
1: But, but but if you have an all rounder who is a genuine all rounder,
2: oh, happy days.
1: Fantastic, obviously. But as we said, they're very rare. You know, just think that's Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so, Christmas,
2: Freddie. And you you, you give me that. Let's let's talk about who is playing today. That is that specialist, genuine well, all rounder.
1: So in Test cricket, I think we mentioned him, Stokes. I think just about gets there. Um, yep. Shakib uh, as well. And then other than that, maybe Jason Holder, as 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 Bish said, possibly um, Jadeja, maybe, but only probably in Indian conditions. Um, they're very rare. Anyone else that I've missed there?
2: No, I don't think you have. No.
1: And it's historically, historically, you know, we're talking Callis, Sobers, maybe Hadley, Imran Khan. These guys who are, you know, they are once in a generation players. Um, and you're right; it is Christmas. It allows you to to build a squad, a side of of immense balance.
0: Hmm. I suppose the only names we could have missed out was Colin de home who is offering a little bit more for that. For New Zealand, Angelo Matthews before his knees. And, and, and it, goes, it speaks to the point, though, I think, that, Freddie, you glazed it over where I wondered if a lot of what Australia was searching for as well, Tom is in the best seat in the house to tell us, was about the fitness. Even though they're fitter than we were at that point in time, there have been a lot of concerns about whether your four bowlers, your free quicks in most cases, um, can go back-to-back test matches without having that extra relief. So I don't think we can glaze that over. Matthews has had his fitness mm-hmm. problems. Watson, Stokes has had his as well. Um, so as fit as they are, it is with the volume of cricket something that a lot of teams are concerned about.
2: Well, there's there's no doubt that over the past decade, there's been a greater focus on sports science and, and protecting the athlete. So there's been more study more influence from that part of the game um, and i think that is that has changed the mentality of selectors the mentality of coaches around what they what they think they need now i would rather i would rather have a situation where you've got a bank of six fast bowlers and you may rotate those fast bowlers if you're finding that one of them's got a little bit of fatigue or had a particularly you know tough game where he bowled a lot of overs and there's a couple of red flags starting to show. Yep. Yeah, you bring in your next fast bowler. I'd rather have that mentality than compromise the balance of the side.
0: Yep. Standing right there with you. Just, just going, I'm fascinated because when I look at the rankings, um, In Test Cricket, it stands for itself. In ODI Cricket, I'm I'm just fascinated, just touch before we pick our top three in each format. Um, Just who are the guys in T20 Cricket? How is that role different? Because you're seeing some strange names that pop up in the T20 rankings. Are we talking international or are we talking all T20 Cricket? Well,
1: I I think think it's important to to discuss the fundamental difference, I think, between all-rounders in the Test game and all-rounders in white ball and specifically T20 cricket. And a lot of the discussion that we've been focusing on when talking about red ball all-rounders has been around workload and that ability to play a role and to to provide. And, Bish, I think, you know, you make a good point. You want more from that fifth bowler than than just being a holding bowler. But I do think that is one of the primary considerations. Whereas in white ball cricket, because you need to have at least five bowlers to complete your allocation of either 50 or 20 overs, I think there is a greater emphasis on the bowling skill of the all-rounder in white ball cricket, or there should be, than there is in red ball cricket. Um, you can't, for example, play a white ball game with only four bowlers because you're going to have to have you know, 20% of your overs bowled by somebody somewhere. Um, and I think as the format gets shorter, in particular, I think it's especially true in T20 because it's harder to hide bowlers. In ODI cricket, I think you're sometimes able to hide that weaker fifth bowler um, depending on the phase in which they but they bowl, particularly in the middle overs, it's changing a little bit now as power hitting is becoming more prominent. But across ODI history, I think you've seen a lot of part timers. Is probably I don't want to sort of demean or belittle what they've done, but I think you can see teams sneak through overs um, in a way in ODIs um, that you can less you can't do so easily in T Twenty. But overall, I definitely think bowling matters more to the all-rounder in white-ball cricket. Moods. So I'd be interested in your thoughts.
2: Yeah, that's a re- it's a really good point. And I'll give you two examples of of that, and one of them is Mohammad Nabi from Afghanistan, and the and the opposite style of cricketer to him is Glenn Maxwell. So you've got Nabi who absolutely owns his four overs in T20 cricket wherever he goes. You can rely on him as a specialist bowler. He can bowl at any phase of the game. He can bowl to both left-handers and right-handers. But his batting is the added bonus to his game, where he can come in at number six and seven and be a, a, you know, a quality finisher. Where Maxwell, on the other hand, you can never go into a T20 game relying on Maxwell's four overs. But what you do get from Maxwell is an incredibly high-ranking impact batsman that comes in at number four or five, or you can bat him anywhere, depending on what your uh, team balance is, and can win the game with the bat. But with the ball, he can contribute. So he really is your sixth bowler. So he's really your emergency bowler if something goes wrong or for whatever reason the opposition you're playing may have, you know, two or three left-handers in their top six, and you can match him up and, and steal one or two overs uh, by bringing his off spin on against those left-handers. So they're the two opposites that you're talking about, Freddie. Is that? Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you know at the top of the show we talked about definitions of all-rounders and there's batting all-rounders and there's bowling all-rounders and that there are the very few uh, genuine all-rounders. And for me, uh, I completely agree with what you're saying about the sort of guys who are almost like sixth bowlers. Maxwell, for example, he is a batting all-rounder. For me, if I was building a T20 side, I would always rather the bowling all rounder over the batting all rounder. Of course, it does depend who it is, but broadly speaking, because you've got to, you know, you, th- this player is going to have to bowl. And I think for that reason, it becomes very important. I, I-, I think bowling all rounders are sp- particularly valuable. Um, you mentioned Nabi. I mean, Nabi someone I would probably class as a genuine all rounder. I think he's almost good enough to get in for his batting and his bowling. Um, but yeah, when push comes to shove, I would always rather have slightly more bowling depth. Um, and someone, say, for example, like um, Nathan Coultenal is a good example of someone who I would happily have batting at seven for me. He's a genuine bowler and a, bat, a bowler who can bat a bit. I'd rather have him at seven and him be my fifth bowler than, say, Max, Maxwell's maybe not the best example because he's so good at batting, but that role of player who can. Um, or maybe Ben Cutting, for example. Ben Cutting is a, is a better batsman than Nathan coulton nile but I wouldn't want to rely on his overs in the same way. And, and for me, in white ball cricket, it's that making sure you've got that strong bowling attack is so important. Um, and this comes back to philosophy and different coaches and, and analysts uh, and, and commentators will have different a different view, perhaps. But that's how I... You've got one choice in the draft.
2: Your team's coming up. You've got to choose between Nubby and Maxwell. Who are you picking? Nabby. Okay, there you go. Because,
1: and, and, and for what, the
2: reasons you explain, which is good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 want the bowling. I want that bowling um, that Naby gives me. I mean, Max was such a good batsman; it makes a difficult decision. And Max, and Naby's maybe towards the end of his career, but on roll alone, Nabby for me. That's and all right. that, We've, we've got a headline, on, on. Bish. We've got you, a headline. Do you agree
0: with that, Doug? Do you agree with that? Because <laughs> that, that, that isn't sitting as, as well with me as, as you seem to have accepted there with Freddie. Is that yeah, something...
2: Look, it, look I, I agree what Freddie comes from because, I, you know, my philosophy around uh, short-form cricket is bowling strong. Right. Um, but Maxwell does it, really throw a difficult spin on it because he's so dangerous with a bat and, you know, the blink of an eye, he can turn a game on its head. So it's just weighing up, do I compromise... The luxury of the quality of the all-round package that Nabi gives me, or do I want the, the you know the 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 magical stardust that Maxwell gives me? No, 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 no. no. I just need I just need
0: to know if there's a draft today on Monday morning, (laughs) and we have Glenn Maxwell and Mohamed Nabi as currently constituted. You two guys are telling me that Nabi wins over Maxwell
1: it depends on the balance of your side no because no
0: don't depend for me Freddie if, if, if you're
1: talking about if, if you're telling me that Maxwell has to bowl four overs every game if they're both going to fulfill exactly the same role let's say bat at number five number six and both of them are going to bowl four overs I'm going to go with Naby because I can trust his bowling in a way that I can't trust Maxwell's. as a Maxwell bowling although actually it's probably a little bit underrated he bowled particularly well in the most recent big bash but his career record as a bowler is, is not... You can't rely on it in the way that you can with Naby. And from, it comes back to... It's a coaching...
0: It's a philosophy. And, and my philosophy is certainly bowling strength is key. The listeners will have something to say about that one, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, just, just to that point on the strength that Freddie has gone with there, are we saying that, let's say, Andre Russell can... Does he walk into any T20 lineup as specific... When fit, a bowler on his own, a batsman on his own, Dwayne Bravo... Not so much, um, though he's classified as the all-rounder. Kyron Pollard has bowled less and less in cricket generally over the last few years, uh, but very good batsman, plays as a batsman. So where do we qualify guys? like We're not going to discuss Narayan and Rashid Khan and all of that. that that's by the way.
1: Well, I, I think that for me, um, there are five players, I think, who are in T20 cricket who I consider genuine all-rounders, and, and by that I mean guys who get in the side for their batting or their bowling alone. Um Shai Afridi is one of them who just about does that. Uh, Mohamed Nabi, Shakib al-Hassan, Moeen Ali, and Andre Russell when fit. For me, I would I would be very happy with all four of those players bowling four overs, and I would be all I'd be very happy with them batting at number seven. Afridi probably just about. Obviously, across his career, he's, he's been used towards the top of the order as well. But those guys, and then maybe Hardik Pandya is someone, Krunal Pandya, are guys who are just on the edge of that. Um, Hardik's bowling may be not quite reliable for four overs. Krunal's batting may be not quite reliable enough. But it shows how difficult that is. I don't know if there's anyone else that you guys want to throw in there who might get in on batting or bowling alone. Well, I
2: think you've, you've taken certainly the best Current players, there's no no question of that. I think pa- uh, Hardik Pandey is definitely in there for mine. Um, if you're talking about someone that can bat in the top six, he can certainly bat five or six in T20 cricket. Are we only talking T20 or you want us to sort of branch out Bish to 50 overs?
0: Fick as so, wherever you like.
2: You know, like I, I think my only concern, I suppose, with uh, Russell is his fitness. You know he, he he has had he's had enormous challenges with his fitness over recent times, and we saw him, you know, struggle in that recent World Cup in England. Uh, you know, to, to to deal with the workload of having to bowl ten overs in a fifty-over game, then back it up with the batting. His skill, he can do it with his eyes closed. You know, there's no question of his ability. He could easily bowl 10 overs and be accountable for those 10. He can easily be the destructive player at number five, six or seven. But uh, there's a full package to being an all-rounder. And part of that package is being fit enough and robust enough as an athlete to be able to withstand the rigors. And that's why you get the very ones that are are very rare are, are so special because it's not only skill. In both the the disciplines of bat and ball, it's enormous amount of um, physical strength and mental strength that's required to conquer the art of the all rounder. So I think we can go on
0: with. Go ahead, Freddie.
1: Just one one thing as well. I think it's worth mentioning is teams desperately search for all rounders for the reason in all formats of cricket, but in T Twenty cricket in particular, because they're so valuable. Um, for balancing the side and I think quite often some players their overall value I suppose is slightly reduced by them being asked to bowl there are a few players who I think who are essentially batsmen who can bowl who should not bowl as much as they do in T20 cricket because I think um, so for example a few that I've just noted down here uh, Colin de grandome Karim Pollard nowadays not back in the day he certainly used to be a better bowler, uh, Ben Cutting, Uh, Mitchell Marsh. These guys are good batsmen who can bowl. And I think quite often they're relied on to bowl in a way that costs their side. And I would rather they just played as a batsman and didn't bowl or certainly weren't a fifth bowler, but were considered as a sixth option. And I think teams are desperate to to have that player who enables that balance. And I listed them. I think, you know, Mood's added Hardick to that list, too. Guys who can bat and can bowl, teams are so desperate to find them. But I think sometimes they ask batsmen who, whilst are useful bowlers, maybe shouldn't do as much bowling as they do. And I think it might cost certain sides when they do that.
0: I thought you were going to throw Jimmy Neesham and Tesara Pereira in there as well as, as, sure, as two guys.
1: Sure. They're, they're very similar players who, who are essentially good batsmen, often powerful hitters who can bowl. And I would you know, be happy giving them an over or two here or there if you know your fifth option struggled or if a matchup allows but I would be feel uneasy about going into a match with them as my
0: fifth bowler. All right. I think there's a lot of guys that we could have brought in there as well. Let's get down to our top three in each format. Let's start with test match cricket since it's the oldest of the siblings here. Uh, Who wants to go first?
2: Well, uh, to me, the, the argument is who's going to be first or second in that list. Bish. Oh, okay. Um, the two, the, first, the top two, as far as I'm concerned, are Sobers and Callis. Um, both unbelievable performers, um, and I can't, I can't really determine who should be number one, who should be number two, uh, out of those two. Um, I didn't see a lot of Sobers play. I saw a lot of Callus play, and what he brought to the table as a top order bat averaging in the mid 50s, the bowler that he was, the second slip that caught everything that went anywhere near him, to me, he was an unbelievable package. The third person in in that list, I, I, I find it very hard to go past Imran Khan. I really do. Because um, before we got online to have this discussion, I just sort of refreshed my memory of his career stats and it is quite phenomenal what he did and look I played against Imran like you did uh, Bish but only at the very end of his career so I remember facing Imran and he was only just above medium pace but I saw him right at the back end of his career I then speak to people that played him in the early parts in the middle of his career they said that Imran Khan was genuinely quick Mm. So to have that plus have the ability to to bat in you know the position of five six seven in ODI cricket and Test cricket uh, and average in the mid thirties which he did is pretty impressive.
1: Statistically, um, bowlers who have taken at least one hundred and fifty wickets in Test cricket. Um, the guys with the biggest difference between their batting average and their bowling average, which is often quite a nice measure of the quality of an all-rounder. We've got Sobers top average, 58 with the bat, 34 with the ball. I think there's no debate that he's he's uh, one of the greats at one of these three. Callis is next, 55 with the bat, 33 with the ball, a difference of 23. So those two are well clear. And then third, Moods, you've nailed it, um, Imran Khan, 38 with the bat, 23 with the ball, which gives him a difference of 15. Just some other names that are near that. We've got Keith Miller, Ravi Jadeja, Sean Pollock, Shaqib Al-Hassan, Ian Botham, Richard Hadley. Um, so, yeah, statistically, Imran um, th- just about sneaks in there as that third player.
0: I, I would go, and it's splitting hairs, really. I like the sort of flair. I remember to the late Tony Cozier talked about a comparison at one stage with Callis, who was your your safety lock. Um, he played with gallantry. He would be your security for you with batting hand, technically sound, proficient, batting at that number three position a lot of the time. And on his day, would get over 90 miles per hour as a bowler. But he talked with some merit about Sir Garfield Sobers and the flair with which he played, the way that he would go out and almost win matches single handedly at times with the bat, um, his ability to bowl seam genuinely, then turn to wrist spin or bowl left arm orthodox. I mean, that is an unheralded skill in our time. And then he would feel it slip, he would feel it short leg, he would feel it silly point and snaffle. If we go back to some of the black and white tapes, some of the most fantastic athletic catches that we've ever seen. So I'm not denouncing Callis because I think Callis—you could argue that he's right there. I just think there's some merit in that analysis. Uh, having captained the team as well to whatever level Sir Garfield. So it's not being nostalgic, but it's just throwing an argument that way. And Keith Miller. I saw Imran Khan bowl like the wind on some tapes in his pump and his prime with that in swinging Yorker. But I look at Miller's record, was oh, it 750 odd games, averaging something close? Obviously, we never saw him play, but the numbers 700 in 55 matches, 170 wickets at 23. Um, I'm going to go Miller, you Something just edges me in that direction. I'll be different from you guys. So I'll go as Callis, Keith Miller with no disparaging at all to Imran Khan. I just think Keith Miller, had he played a lot more for whatever reason, those are superb numbers as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, Odi? Let's move. Oh. Um, I'm going – I'm going to throw myself into the mouth of the beast and say – Callis, I want to say Shakib, Al hassan although I'm questioning the sample size, and Kluzner for his impact generally on the game.
1: I think Klusnja is one just worth mentioning in terms of sort of his impact on the role. Uh, more broadly, like he was someone who brought, I think he was one of the very first players to start bringing in sort of power hitting practice and technique. I read an interview with him recently where he said he used to just go and ask for throwdowns and try and hit sixes, you know, in a way that we see now with range hitting, you know, that's become commonplace. But he was one of the first players to do that. Um, statistically, his numbers are phenomenal an average of 41 with the bat and 30 with the ball, which gives him a difference of 11, second only ever to Callis. Um, the other player, again, this is with 150 wickets taken. The other player that, uh, Bish, you didn't mention, I think is worthy of a mention, and I think I probably will stick him in my top three, is Shane Watson. Um, yeah. Consistently underrated, both in, in all formats of the game, um, but he is a, a white ball legend, really. Um, you know, and in the early days of his career, talk about callous bowling 90 mile an hour, Watson was that too. Um, you know a sharp bowler a genuine you know he could probably be a he could get in the side as a, as a bowler certainly and you know evolved into a seriously good batsman um, I think Watson's sort of much maligned in Australia for, for many reasons but is a phenomenal player and I think I put him in there and then one other player I just want to mention who um, often I think gets talked about in test cricket more than white ball cricket but is Flintoff Flintoff's one day bowling was phenomenal uh, he was a brilliant death bowler. That you know, front-on action, that in-swing he got, made, it was perfect for, for death-overs Yorkers. I was watching a, a video on YouTube before we jumped on of a compilation of them. They, they really are something special. So I'd throw Flintoff in there as well as a, as a bit of a rogue one, um, often thought of in, in Red Bull terms, but as a white ball all-rounder, was, was very special.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with Watson. I, I, think, um, I don't think he's rated as highly as he should be Um, you know, he, he batted at the top of the order. So he had to take on the, 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 the new ball and have an impact, um, at the top of the order, his strike rate in ODI cricket, I think is just over 90. So, you know, he played, which you probably think about in today's strike rates, isn't that much, but certainly in the generation that he played, that's, that's a very, very high strike rate in comparison to his peers. To give an example, Callis' strike rate, um, who also batted at the top of the order, was in the early 70s. So so Watson's strike rate is 90. So from a point of view of the impact he has on your team is enormous. The head start he gives you in those power play overs to be able to then feed into the middle order. So Watson, without question, is in my top three.
0: So your top three is who?
2: I'd say, in no particular order, Callis, and Watson.
0: Freddie? I'm, I'm going to agree with that uh, again. <laughs> I just wanted to put it up on the dartboard so I can throw darts at it all through the week and, and tease it <laughs> out there eventually. Um, okay. So if we move to T20, and I must admit to you, I found this really tough um, so I just want to clarify, are we talking all T20 cricket or are we just talking T20 internationals for our listeners?
1: I, th- I think all. Given our discussion a few weeks back about how domestic T20 is often as high a standard as international, I think we should follow through and go with all T20. All
0: right. And therefore, I am not going to jump the gun first on this one. Um, Let Freddie go first. Yeah, uh, Freddie into the hot seat.
1: Uh, well i'm going I'm gonna say um, a player we've just mentioned again. I think Watson, for me, is going to get there again. Um, Watson nowadays is not considered as an all-rounder, mainly because he isn't really anymore. He doesn't bowl much, but he was an all-rounder, and he was a hell of an all-rounder at the start of his well, in the start and through much of his career. Um, when he played for Bangalore uh, in the IPL at times he was their best bowler. Um he's a genuine bowling option. He's a fantastic batsman. Um, he was someone who could get in. The, I, talk, I talked about all-rounders who could get in the side for batting or bowling. He was one of them. The other player I'm going to mention um, is Shai De Freede. I think he's often forgotten um, in T20 cricket, um, particularly because he's been around forever. Um, but he is um, one of the best, if not the best statistically across a long period of time, leg spinners that the game has seen. Obviously, Rashi Khan is very much challenging that now. Um, And as a batsman as well, we know what he, you know, he was sort of, he's the perfect cricketer for T20, isn't he, in many respects. He bowls leg spin, which is, um, you know, so in fashion now. And as a batsman, he would go out there and tee off from ball one. He has huge power. Um, He's an entertainer. So Freedy comes in at two. And then my number three, I I can't, like a very, very difficult decision from number three. The two that I've noted down here are Karim Pollard, when he was more of a bowler. Um, He's also brings a huge amount fielding wise. Um, but then Andre Russell, just what, you know, he, he, the, the, the sample size is still a little bit small, but what he's doing is phenomenal. So I, I'm going to go with Russell. I think he's done enough for me to get in there.
2: Yep. Well, Russell's got my vote. Um, I'm going Russell, Watson and Afridi in that order.
0: <laughs> I didn't take you long at all, Tom, did it? Well, Freddie well, gave it me was,
2: time was... to think about it.
1: Shaki, <laughs> <laughs> even not quite got their few moods. No, well, well,
2: he is sensational, but I I agree with the points you made about Afridi. I think Afridi over the last 12, 14 years in the role as the all-rounder has been nothing short of brilliant. You know, he's a match winner with both bat and ball, and he's just done it consistently. Um, You know, and we've got to remember Afridi, not the Afridi today, but the Afridi... You know, when he was in his sweet spot, which was a long period where he was playing, you know, at the highest of high quality um, throughout his career.
0: It would please you to know that I did have Shane Watson at the top of my list, along with Andre Russell for this leg of it. And I am quite redundant on the third person. You guys say a so I suppose that's going to be the consensus. But I would nail in my top two, Watson and Russell. So we leave it there for the moment. Our our listeners will have their say on who we've left out, the multitude of them. Um, Thank you very much, Freddie. Thank you very much. Tom, any final words in closing? As cricket looms large on the horizon in your part of the world, Freddie Wilde?
1: Yes, yeah. I think it's a month, pretty much a month today, that we'll be back on. on well, we'll see live action resuming. I think. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's light at the end of the tunnel, and I think imagine the whole cricket world is looking forward to a return of, uh, of live cricket, and it's not that long away now.
2: Tom. Yeah, well, there's no cricket. It's winter here in Australia, Bish. But mm-hmm. there are, there are talks though about Australia are due to travel to the UK to play some one-day cricket in August. So there is, I know, discussions around whether that's going to happen or not. Uh, with regards to franchise cricket, the Caribbean Premier League, there are uh, some positive discussions going on with the uh, the government in Trinidad, in your hometown, uh, with the CPL officials around whether they can do a similar type model of a biosecure Um, arrangement there through hotel and venue. Uh, Let's hope so because, you know, not only the players but the the, the cricket lovers, the public uh, are desperate for some live sport.
0: I just want to close by saying well done to New Zealand for controlling seemingly this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and keeping their country nice and healthy, Trinidad and Tobago. Well, let's keep it. I just want to remind the players as well as they start. It's such a great time an example in that England West Indies series to set the tone for the rest of the world not only for cricket but for sport in general and the players are going to have it tough but it's a health issue so I hope that they're able to stick to their plans and disciplines Thank you Freddie, thank you Tom and thank you very much to our listeners and we hope that you enjoy this podcast <laughs>